This is Built to Sell Radio with your host, John Warlow. This episode is brought to you by Built to Sell, the online course, which is an interactive video-based training program that teaches eight strategies for driving up the value of your company. The course is made up of these 32 videos along with templates and quizzes and worksheets. You can view training videos in your own time, connect with others, and compare notes with classmates in the discussion area of each module. To learn more, head on over to builttosell.com slash course. My next guest is Stefan Spencer, who sold Net Concepts to Cavario in 2010. And I think the story is fantastic, and there's lots of lessons embedded throughout. There's one little reference I wanted to make sure you listen for, and it's where Stefan talks about having multiple bidders for your company and the importance of that, but also the importance of being relatively subtle in letting you know, buyer number one, know that there's a buyer number two interested in the business. And I think this is a really, really insightful point because as much as we all want to go to market and create a buying frenzy for our business, the reality is unless you're the next Google or the next, you know, famous company, there's going to be just a few bidders for your company. And some buyers will get turned off if you overplay your hand, if you suggest that there are many bidders who are all chomping the bit to buy your business. Some buyers will turn to you and say, well, you know what, then we're out. We're not going to participate in a beauty contest. We're not going to participate in an auction. We're out. And they, you, you, know, you will have overplayed your hand. So while you know, it's a very subtle conversation that you've got to have with buyers, and again, your, your intermediary is likely to have this conversation, they want to be aware that there are you know, other parties that are interested in the business without being forced into making a decision or without having the sense that you're overplaying your hand. It's a subtle, subtle difference that I think Stefan does a great job of articulating how you've got to play that dance. Uh, without further ado, Stefan Spencer. Stefan, welcome to Build This Hell Radio. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so you, you started this business called Net Concepts in 1995. Tell us a little bit about what you did. Right, so interesting story. I was actually a graduate student in biochemistry studying for a PhD, and uh, I met some of the guys from Netscape at a conference, so I decided I got to get on this bandwagon. So I, I dropped out of my PhD program to start a company, which was Net Concepts, not having any experience with business, no no courses or even computing courses, really, I was studying for, you know, down this track to become a, a postdoc and then a professor and so forth. And uh, so I, I started Net Concepts as an interactive agency. And then over time, I morphed it into an SEO firm. So search engine optimization became expert at how Google works. Fantastic. So for folks who are maybe new to SEO or SEM, your company would help a business improve their rankings, both naturally and paid, so that when somebody types in, you know, plumber Denver, you know, their company would come up. Uh, that's basically what you morphed into. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. But it was primarily more on the organic side, the earned media side, instead of managing people's ad campaigns in, in Google AdWords. I mean, we did a little bit of that, but it was mostly on the SEO side. Got it. And how did you charge for your services? Right. Well, that's another interesting story because um, we were charging on a monthly retainer basis, primarily just for you know consulting services. We do one-off SEO audits as well for a set fee. But then I realized that well, on the paid search side, like Google was charging uh, per click for uh, 
you know, Google AdWords for the pay-per-click revenue. And what couldn't we figure out a way to do that on the SEO side? And I had invented a technology platform in 2003 that allowed us to do that very thing. And it was less per click to use our technology that I'd invented versus using, uh, well, paying Google for AdWords or, um, yeah, so it was just basically a no-brainer. Let's buy as much traffic as we can from Net Concepts using their Gravity Stream platform, and then um, whatever is left, we'll spend on our uh, pay-per-click budget with uh, with AdWords and so forth. So Gravity Stream, help me understand. It was a product that you were essentially reselling. Yeah, it was essentially. It was. It was essentially. You know, there's this term in the industry called software as a service, right? So, we were selling the software as a service, and it was running on our servers. the The beauty of it was we were basically fixing the all the inherent problems with our our clients' website. We had companies like uh, Nordstrom and Zappos using this technology, and it was. Um, just a, a, a runaround of uh, or a, a workaround for doing the uh, hardcore kind of invasive changes to the client's website to their underlying e-commerce platform or or CMS content man- management system. So essentially, it was like, well, let's have a, rather than all the ma- major invasive surgery that would be required if we wrote up a, a, an audit and went through this consulting arrangement and then you spent uh, many, many months and millions of dollars fixing your website, let's just fix it for you through this technology and you charge per, uh, per click on a performance basis. And so it was a no-brainer. And uh, the thing was, clients didn't know that such a thing existed. So we still hung out our shingle as a, an SEO consulting firm. We'd get clients coming in and then we'd look for opportunities where Gravity Stream would solve their problem without the uh, major invasive surgery that would normally be required. And they loved it. And we had a, actually the re- majority of our revenue was driven through that technology platform, through that software as a service. So the, but by the end, the majority of your revenue was coming from Gravity Stream, the, the software as opposed to the consulting side. Correct. Even though we were, we hung out our shingle as an SEO consulting firm. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. So the, and was that intentional that you that you found the you know custom consulting uh, positioning yourself that way was sort of a great way to get in the door and then on the back end sell Gravity Stream. It was a perfect way. Yeah. And. and some of it was luck. <laughs> we didn't figure this all out at the beginning. I mean, I, I was working on a, a, a client engagement as a consultant. Uh, I flew into uh, or uh, drove into uh, Kohl's uh, headquarters, Kohl's, the department store um, chain. And um, they just there was a, a problem I was trying to solve to show that we weren't going to ruin their site with SEO, that it wasn't going to be just full of keywords everywhere, and I had no access to their servers. So I'm like, how can I figure out a way to show them what we could do in terms of SEO w- without r- any access to their, their site? And so I, I invented this way to proxy server approach to fix up their site. And so that was just for demonstration purposes and they loved it and we did a, a great consulting work for them. But then I had another client a few months later, Northern Tool, that was running up against a deadline, a, a um, holiday kind of uh, server or uh, you know, 
the code freeze deadline, they call it, where they're not going to make any changes during the holiday season. And it was August and the deadline was in September. And we really need to fix the URLs of our site. We, you know, this probably sounds pretty geeky for some of your listeners, but um, it, we were just running up against a wall and, and their servers w- weren't co-op cooperating. So I'm like, what if I used that same technology, that, that proxy technology that I was using, demonstrate to Kohl's what we were going to do? What if it was in a production kind of situation and running all of the uh, optimizations you know, f- for Google on the Northern Tool website? And Northern Tool loved it. And they were like, let's do it. And, and that was the, the workaround Then the very first Gravity Stream client. Love it, love it. You know, I just did an interview the other day for a podcast, and and one of the guys says, you know, what's your best advice for young entrepreneurs or whatever? And I said, just go sell something. Go get into business. Don't worry about like, humming and hawing about your business plan. Go sell something because that's when you know you're going to find out what your customers really want, and you're going to start to actually build a business. If you just sit in the background doing your business plan again and again and again, you're never going to realize in, in what the market wants. In your case. Uh, you know, it was selling the, the consulting services that, that helped you identify Gravity Stream as a product. Give us a sense, you know, how the business scaled. So you, you started in 95. Uh, by the time you were, uh, you know, building to sell and kind of moving in that direction, uh, what was the revenue up to, number of employees, that kind of stuff? Right. So, um, yeah, it, it took a bit of a, there was a bit of a story arc here because, uh, um, so we had maybe in the late nineties around, uh, I don't know, 12 staff. And, but then I get this idea in my head, I, I want to live in New Zealand, <laughs> which I had never been to. Uh, and none of my staff knew I had this desire. Um, I was talking to my family about it and, and we're like, okay, yeah, we can, we can get on board with that. Even though they hadn't visited either. Who's they? Your kids, my, wife? What, what's the situation? Yeah, three, three daughters, stepdaughter, and uh, my wife at the time, we all decided let's, let's do this. And, uh, so I applied for residency, permanent residency, and I got in. And so we moved in late, uh, 1999 to New Zealand, and we had clients. All all of our clients were U.S. based, and they didn't know this was coming. So um, one of our bigger uh, brand uh, clients was Birdseye, and I thought, oh, I, I maybe have a 50/50 shot of uh, this company still surviving the founder moving half a world away. Um, but I, I'm willing to take the risk, and you know, entrepreneurs are risk takers. And I wanted the lifestyle of living in paradise in New Zealand, so we did it. Um, I started an office in New Zealand. We kept a small office. We scaled down to just a, a few staff in the um, in the Madison, Wisconsin office, and then I built up an office in uh, the North Shore of Auckland, New Zealand, and uh, that. Actually, not only did we maintain our clients in the U.S., but we were able to grow them pretty significantly because I was able, with the uh, favorable exchange rate, to hire top, top talent in New Zealand, uh, where it was hard to compete in in the U.S. and and you know, especially when you're in Madison, Wisconsin, and uh, the siren song of "Oh, go to uh, the Bay Area and and make a fortune over there," you know programmers and designers and so forth. Dollar for dollar, Stefan, what would a a programmer cost you in Madison? What would the same programmer have costed you in in Auckland? uh, Well, at the time, I mean, the exchange rates changed quite a lot, but um, 
it was probably a two for one. Wow. So yeah. you, you've got this great exchange, right? You're building the business in, in Auckland. And then what happened next? Did you come back to the United States? Maybe take us to the next chapter. Yeah, what yeah. So, that? Right. So um, in 2007, uh, my family and I decided, let's, let's move back to the States. Um, I wanted to sell the business and it would be more effective. And by that time, we'd grown uh, pretty significantly. We were uh, well over $5 million a year in revenue. And... Um, yeah, it was uh, uh, Gravity Stream had really grown and uh, was driving. It was really the engine for growth for our business, and I wanted to to exit uh, within the next couple years, which we did. We exited in early 2010, but um, I, I figured it would be a lot more efficient and effective if I were stateside during this um, selling process. What was the What was the triggering event, Stefan, that made you think I want to sell? Um, I was just kind of ready to do something different. It, it had been well over a decade of running this business and, um, I had a great lifestyle. In fact, halfway into the, that time in New Zealand, it was almost eight years. I was there halfway into it. We decided to move away from Auckland to the South Island of New Zealand to Christchurch where I didn't have any staff. All my staff was in the Auckland office at uh, the time we had maybe uh, 25 staff, maybe 30. And um, yeah, I decided I'm, I'm going to let my general manager kind of just run with things. Uh, we also have brought on a, a CEO uh, in, in the New Zealand office uh, on a equity kind of, uh, you know, um, sweat equity sort of basis. And, um, yeah, I just kind of not checked out, but I, I drew away a bit from the day-to-day -day operations of the business. I only flew in to Auckland to check on things and to like participate in, uh, in strategy meetings and things like that. A lot of Maybe. people are listening to this though, Stefan, and going, wow, that sounds like the perfect life. I mean, if you'd set the business up so well to run without you, why sell? Like I said, I just was interested in doing something different. Now, it was not a, a I didn't have a fire under my butt to sell. Um, I was just, I was ready to do something different. But if I didn't get the right price, I was not going to sell. So, uh, plus we, uh, we, we just missed the U.S. I had made many, many trips over those uh, seven and a half years, average maybe uh, seven or eight trips a year for a week and a half at a time. It was kind of exhausting. So that played into the equation too. I was tired of all that trans-Pacific travel. So I thought, let's move back to the States, see what happens. Um, we're not under uh, the gun to, to sell for any particular reason, but um, it I, I, halfway into running the business, I was like, yeah, I'm really tired of this. I'm kind of burned out. I need a break. And I took a six-month sabbatical and, and didn't check in it hardly at all. I did give one or two speaking gigs during that whole time. But I was, I, I was off the grid uh, for that whole time of uh, six months. And that was great. I, I rejuvenated and uh, came back excited and, and you know, reinvigorated to work in the business again. But, if, you're, uh, if you're listening to this, just Stefan, I'll just interject briefly. If you're listening to this, 
one of the eight things that drive the value of your company is going to be what we call hub and spoke, which as Stefan is describing is the ability for you to step away from the company and the business to continue to thrive without you. Start with two days, see how it works, then go to a week. In Stefan, your case, you were doing six months away from the business. So clearly yeah. this was an attractive asset to a buyer. Right. And it wasn't always that way. So back in the late 90s, when I was looking at selling, I mean, looking at, at moving to New Zealand, I also looked at selling then. And my name and and that constant, also my personal name of Stefan Spencer and my uh, company name were kind of uh, too in, intermingled. And uh, if I didn't go with the business, nobody was going to buy it. So I found that out um, through just like kind of quietly shopping my business around uh, in the late 90s before we moved to New Zealand. And it's like, yeah, that's not going to work. So, so so what did you do, Stefan, very practically speaking, to make your business less dependent on you personally? Just, I think what, what I would love to hear right now is some very specific tactics, not generalities, 30,000 foot, but you know, very specific things that you did to make your business less dependent on you, you in those seven years. Right. So I mean, the biggest thing was that technology platform, because that was uh, just a, a an ATM machine, <laughs> right? It just was printing money for us. Uh, so that that was very uh, a, a huge part of the equation. I also hired a, a CEO, so I had a general manager that I hired within weeks of uh, landing in New Zealand in uh, 1999, early 2000. So that helped um, to have a, a, a manager, not just a, uh, an office manager kind of person, which I had left uh, in charge of the uh, Madison office. And she grew to become, uh, we called her managing director so that um, she'd be able to get meetings with key um, uh, prospects and so forth. But uh, the, the bringing on that general manager who then did all the hiring, did all the performance reviews and all that stuff, so I didn't have to do any of that anymore, not only freed me up like mentally and uh, brought more joy back into, into my uh, life, my, my business life, but also made it more scalable and more sellable without me having to go with it. Now, I was still the thought leader. Um, so that's, that's an issue where you have to develop other thought leaders within the company. So I encourage, uh, key staff, various, um, um, executives and, and, uh, top consultants within the company to, to speak, to write articles for, um, you know, like multi-channel merchant search engine land and so forth. I introduced them to the editors and, and a lot of folks would be like, what are you doing? You're, you, you're, uh, you're, you're basically giving them a platform to charge whatever they want and, and hold you hostage and say, double my, my, uh, uh, income, you know, my salary now, because, um, I'm this famous, uh, SEO consultant now, and, or they'd leave and go to, you know, work on their own. But you know, what? if you're going to, if you hold too tightly to your business and you don't, uh, actively develop your staff kind of work on growing their CVs or resumes uh, at the same time as you're building your revenue base, you're, you're stymieing your, your growth and making it harder to sell. So the Gravity Stream product helped, hiring a CEO helped, and encouraging your, your staff to have their own profile sort of helped make this business less dependent on you. Yeah. And, and we added more governance. So I, I, 
uh, created a board of directors and which ultimately led to kind of my disengagement with the business because I became a minority uh, kind of I, I became a minority shareholder through my divorce, which I can get to in a minute. And I was only one of five board members at the time that happened. So I lost control of my business, which was a painful lesson. So um, take us through that, Stefan. Yeah. Okay. So we moved back to the States, to Madison, Wisconsin in 2007. And then in 2008, my wife at the time said, you know, uh, this isn't working. We're going to, I'm filing for divorce. So I was not expecting that. Uh, That was, that was a surprise to me. Huge blessing. Uh, In retrospect, I'm, I'm with my soulmate now and we're going to get married this year. The, the, at the time it was, uh, really broadsided me. And so um, by having the business structured the way it was, where there were four, uh, five board members, my uh, wife at the time had a seat, I had a seat, and uh, uh, we had my CEO in a seat and, and, and a couple of advisors um, that you know just were really great industry folks on, on the board as well. That uh, sounded really good at the time when I had no idea that uh, my marriage was in trouble. But then to have um, you know this situation where suddenly I'm uh, a minority shareholder in my own business, and um, I'm also one of five board members. I'm like, wow, okay, this is not working for me. Stefan, how did you become a minority shareholder? So I'm, I, I get the fact that you you would have had half the shares between you and your wife. Is that how that structured? So she had half of the shares uh, between the two of us. I had the other half. And this was all already on paper. It wasn't through the divorce proceedings that our shares got split up. So um, she already had half of our total shareholding. I had also given key staff, uh, like the CEO had a chunk of of, uh, the business and um, our chief operations officer had uh, a, a bit and a, a few other key people, um, VP of sales and marketing had, had some as well. And, you know, so it all adds up to essentially at the end of the day, I had um, not enough to really drive me to want to stay with the business and really grow it. I'm like, yeah, if, if we didn't find a, a buyer, I probably would have just moved on and uh, done something different and left, you know, uh, the folks to to run net concepts. So it was uh, great that we did have several potential buyers at the time uh, kind of competing with each other. That's another key thing is don't just have one potential buyer and be very subtle about how you let the other buyer know that there's another buyer also courting you. Uh, so that really worked in our favor, and and then I was able to uh, negotiate favorable terms in, in terms of my um, earnout. I didn't have to stick around for several years. I was done in eight months uh, at at Cavario, and then I went off and did my own thing, built up um, what I'm doing now. Wow, what a, so many questions. So so you've got this board, uh, you, your wife, your CEO, your two advisors. Uh, did you all agree to take the business to market that it was that it was time to sell it in light of the divorce? Yep, um, it there was interest in selling even before 
the divorce and not that it was like a big fire under our butts, like I said, but um, there was interest in, in, in doing that. But then when the divorce happened and my ex-wife and myself were both like, yeah, it's that we definitely want to sell. We, we're, we're ready. And it was pretty easy to get the other uh, board members on board with that because you know, if, if this, the, the primary thought leader in the business and founder is ready to move on, it's probably time for the whole company to get sold rather than just have that founder go off and do something different and potentially even create a competitor. So take us through the sales process. Did you hire an intermediary to, to shop the deal? What, what was the next step you took? Yeah, we hired an interim CEO uh, because the CEO that I had uh, was based in New Zealand. <clears throat> so that was logistically difficult to manage. Um, and we, we figured that we needed somebody who had experience dealing with um, kind of the, the, the VC world and the uh, you know, potential buyers and so forth. So we hired an interim CEO uh, who um, did a great job and he got us most of the way there and creating all the kind of documentation that would be required and so forth. And then uh, we, at the kind of 90% um, of the way mark, had moved on to, because um, he was very expensive too, uh, we had to just kind of do it ourselves at the very end, but he had gotten a lot of the ducks in a row for us and gotten the conversations going with uh, these two potential um, suitors. And when you when you say gotten most of the way there, did, did, you, did you then hire an intermediary or did you negotiate with both of those suitors directly? Yeah, we we did it directly, which probably in retrospect was not the smartest move, and we we did didn't get the best deal that we could have. Uh, but you know, as I said, it was really expensive to have this interim CEO, and uh, cash flow just didn't support um, continuing at that uh, high price. Uh, yeah. Ballpark. I mean, I don't need to know what you pay your interim CEO, but ballpark, what does an interim CEO cost? If, if, if entrepreneurs are listening to this saying, you know, what would it cost me to hire an interim CEO? I mean, it must be pretty significant money. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it, it could be, you know, half a million dollars a year yeah. plus or minus. Yeah. yeah. And so, and so you had these two potential suitors you mentioned it was important for you to be subtle about letting them know you were also negotiating with a third party. Maybe walk us through that comment a little bit. Well, I think it's kind of crass if you just say, well, I've got this other company and uh, you know they're making this offer or whatever. I'm not a professional negotiator, so take all this with a grain of salt, right? I took, uh, <laughs> I took a Keras seminar on negotiating <laughs> a, a long time ago, but that's kind of the level of experience I have on negotiating. So um, I'm, I'm not an expert on this. However, I just think it's really crass to uh, try and pit the two uh, uh, suitors against each other in a um, overly aggressive way. So uh, we were, we were subtle about it and I think it worked uh, very much to our advantage or to our inner favor because um, Covario, the uh, company that ended up acquiring Net Concepts, um, did kind of 
um, and introduce some more favorable terms into the LOI, into the letter of intent, and uh, um, allowed me to negotiate certain things uh, even after the LOI, like um, the earnout time period and so forth. I don't think they thought that I would just leave as soon as the earnout was finished. I, I, I'm pretty sure that I surprised their CEO when I said, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm out of here. Uh, but it was something that I just would not have uh, negotiated. I, I would not have said yes to the deal. I would have scuttled the deal if I had to do like a two-year earnout or something. I just was not interested in having uh, an, a job and, and those golden handcuffs for uh, even a year. You know, so six, eight months was my max. And I was able to get it. And give us tips, because certainly in a professional services environment, now, granted, you had Gravity Stream, and so there, there was the product overlay, but certainly in a professional services environment, you know, we would, use, we would be used to seeing earnouts length of you know, two or three years. You got it to eight months. What, what were your tactics there to get it down to eight months? Uh, well, <laughs> I was just really um, insistent that I'm, I'm not signing unless I – you know, I, I don't want any earnout. I don't want any golden handcuffs. I want to stay because I'm just excited and delighted to stay with this company, not because I'm contractually um, kind of forced to. So uh, that, I, that was just my line in the sand. Yeah. And, yeah. As, part, as part of the deal, um, I, I understand as part of the divorce, you had to disclose the, the, the buying price Cavario paid. Do, do you mind sharing what, what they actually ended up paying to, to buy con- net concepts? Um, I think that's confidential. And it, uh, I, I could give you kind of a, a general idea of what went into the deal. Sure. As that'd far be great. as like, yeah, that'd be great. It's it because there was some cash and there was some stock. And uh, this was another lesson is have the two business entities compatible with each other. So the company that is acquiring you, if they are a different type of entity, in this mean, case, it was a legal structure, a legal structure, right? Okay. So they, so they were a corporation and we were an LLC and, oh, what a mess. Um, so essentially we got taxed to an extreme because of that, uh, um, that discrepancy between the two business types. If we were both corporations or we both LLCs, it would have been way better. So I paid a lot of tax, a lot of tax. So I had to pay significantly on the stock that I got <coughs> to the government, right? So, and then uh, for the cash that I got too. So I got some cash for the stock. I got some stock for the stock, if, uh, for the shares of, of Net Concepts LLC. And I got some, um, uh, also, Covario was acquired uh, itself in 2014, and I got some, um, I got some cash again then, uh, because Covario got acquired by Dentsu Aegis, which is a big, multi-billion-dollar ad, uh, ad agency conglomerate, and um, so I had stock in, in Covario that I was able to uh, get cash out of at that point. Fantastic. So, but- and, and that's one of the things built to sell radio listeners. If you uh, are accepting a deal where you're taking stock in the acquiring company, keep in mind that they uh, they too may be acquired. And what are the provisions? Your lawyer, you're going to want to have your lawyer provision or write up some details as to what happens in the scenario where your acquirer 
in turn gets acquired by an even larger company because that can accelerate payments to you, uh, but it needs to be you know papered properly by a lawyer. It sounds like you had some good representation in your case, Stefan. Yeah, yeah, great representation in terms of lawyers and accountants. Um, yeah, we didn't just use our, our normal accounting firm to handle the uh, the transaction. We stepped up our game to really get. Um, high-end firms to help us with the whole transaction. Fantastic. Talk a little bit about the proportion of the deal that was on the earnout. So in an agency environment, believe it or not, I've heard numbers as high as, as 70% of the total compensation given to the owners contingent on them hitting future goals in an earnout. I'm sure it wasn't that high in your case, but can you ballpark for us what proportion of your total sort of take from the deal would have been, if you will, at risk in that eight-month or now? Yeah, well, it was less than half. Let's uh, say that. I, I, like I said, I'm I'm probably still uh, contractually obligated to not disclose specific terms of the deal. Absolutely. But, yeah. So, um, yeah. Let's just say it was it was less than half, uh, but it was significant enough that I actually did want to stick around for yeah. that, that, uh, actually technically I think it was a six month earnout, Um, but then I wanted to wait till the last check cleared and <laughs> everything was, uh, you know, there were, there were no, um, questions about, did we hit the, um, the retention, uh, threshold of re- retaining these clients and and the revenue numbers uh, from these uh, clients and so forth. So, as soon as that all was clear that uh, we had hit our numbers, gone. I was out of there. <laughs> You're not alone, my friend. We hear that a lot. <laughs> the uh, yeah. the earn out period is uh, is not fun, and and then obviously uh, entrepreneurs are meant to be entrepreneurs and and not employees. So you you in your case went off and did something else. What are you up to now? What uh, tell us a little bit about what you're uh, what you're doing now. Right. So I am doing consulting, but uh, instead of building up another agency again, I have a small team and I'm just doing solo consulting for the most part where uh, I'm advising big name clients and also some smaller companies too, like even startups and nonprofits and so forth on SEO, how to get to the top of Google. So I've I've worked with, uh, since the um, uh, post-acquisition, I've worked with, uh, for example, Chanel, um, Bed Bath & Beyond, Best Buy Canada, um, Sony Store, uh, Zappos, um, CNBC, Bloomberg Business Week. Lots of, uh, lots of big brands. Yeah. And, and so where do people get in touch with you, Stefan? Yeah. So uh, my website is stephanspencer.com, um, S-T-E-P-H-A-N. Um, so Go there and check me out, and and uh, my email is stefan at stephanspencer.com. And um, oh, also, if uh, your listeners would like a copy of one of my books, I got permission from my publisher. So my publisher is O'Reilly, and they are an awesome publisher. I have three books with them. So your listeners can get one of those three books for free, a digital copy. Uh, the three books are The Art of SEO, so I'm co-author on that. That's a thousand pages. That's a that's a heavy read. My friend Amy Africa says it's better than Ambient. I'm not sure if that's a compliment, <laughs> but I'll take it as one. Uh, social e-commerce. So that's all about taking social media and leveraging it for driving online sales, not just for making friends on the internet, right? Uh, so it's got a real business purpose if you do it right. 
Uh, so that's socially commerce, and that's only a few hundred pages. That's a lot easier of a read. <clears throat> and then the third one is Google Power Search. That's under 100 pages. So that's a no-brainer, and that's all about how to be a power user of Google and find anything. Confidential business plans and marketing plans of competitors even, and forced to research reports that normally cost thousands of dollars. You, it's amazing what you can find uh, with Google if you know the right kinds of searches to use. And we all use Google, so that's a that's a no-brainer for everybody. That, that one's uh, Google Power Search. So how do our listeners get a hold? You mentioned you, we can get a free download of one of these books. How do, how do they do that? So email my assistant. I can't put the URL out there because then it's going to be out in, like, no on the show notes and whatever. But if uh, your listeners email my assistant, and her email is admin at stephanspencer.com, and you can put that email in the show notes. Just say that I want uh, the free book, and you don't even have to decide yet which book. She'll send you a link to then uh, pick which book you want. It's on the O'Reilly site, and then um, you get it for free. So it's a, like for the art of SEO, that's a great bargain because it's a $50 book retail, and uh, social e-commerce is a $40 book. Admin at stephanspencer.com. Seven, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, you bet. It's great having you. Great being here. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.